ask you to turn in your Bibles once again to 1 Corinthians, but not 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Last year this time, we uh, were not able to meet together in person, but uh, nevertheless, virtually, we considered uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11. And uh, we are reminded that in the midst of this fallen world where we see the effects of sin all around us, we have an abiding hope in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, Paul continues in this next set of verses to reflect upon the resurrection. And so today I want us to look at verses 12 through 28, where... Um, Paul is dealing with, first of all, a, a what-if question. The Corinthians are asking, what if uh, the, the dead are not raised? Would it really matter? Uh, does it really matter to our faith? Would it really matter for our understanding of salvation if the dead are not raised? Paul is going to tease out the consequences of that what-if in verses 12 through 19. And then in verses 20 through 28... Uh, Paul is going to turn to the in fact, the in fact of Christ's resurrection. What's true, because Christ has risen from the dead. And so, so he's going to speak to us about what in fact is true and reality in the light of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's verses 20 through 28. Um, now, I, I think that this passage, that, that basic structure of what if and in fact is, is very helpful in a number of ways. After all, we have different questions, different what if questions related to death and the life to come, do we not? And we need to learn from the Apostle Paul to answer those what if questions with the in fact of Christ's resurrection. Uh, so let's turn our attention to the reading of this passage, but first let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, please speak to us now through your Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, your servants here are listening. Uh, please speak to us to instruct us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to call people to the faith and to establish us in the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from dead, the first roots of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Well, some have started to speak about times in which we live as a, a new age of anxiety. There's widespread recognition of uh, an increasing hopelessness in our society. And I think to understand a little bit of where that comes from, we, we need to go back a, a, at least a couple of centuries, two or three, three centuries, to the time of the Enlightenment, when many people bought into the idea, in the Western world at least, bought into the idea of human progress. That uh, by human reason and human efforts alone, we could solve humanity's problems, make for, for better societies, do away with war and suffering and injustice and poverty, and make for a more peaceful world marked by equality. But that came to screeching halt in the 20th century. As the 20th century, in the span of really just four decades, we saw two devastating world wars, uh, a pandemic, and the Great Depression. And following on the heels of that, not too much longer, you had the nuclear-armed Cold War between Western countries and communist ones. And uh, it wasn't until 1989, when the Cold War ended, um, that things began to change in a more positive light. But during the 20th century, many leading thinkers spoke about that time as an age of anxiety. After the end of the Cold War, some optimistic thinkers started to say, the age of anxiety is over. And the Enlightenment idea of human progress was rekindled in many ways in sectors of our society. People started to say once again that through human reason and modern technology and scientific advancements and so on, that we could decrease violence and warfare and poverty and improve health care and lengthen lifespan and so forth. And no doubt many of those things have happened. But in 2001... Uh, particularly on 9-11, all of that got turned upside down once again. Here we are two decades later, and I think we, we can all testify to the pessimism 
and the hopelessness that we see all around us in our society today. It's, it's virtually ubiquitous. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, stats are showing that an increasing number of parents and grandparents are worried and concerned and pessimistic about the world that the children and grandchildren are going to grow up in. I think there are a lot of reasons for this, this loss of hope in society, you know, increase the increasing polarization that we see all around us in society and in politics, the increasing distrust in uh, the, the very institutions that used to hold society together, uh, the looming fear of uh, another possible terrorist event or um, some random act of violence in our own country that would once again rot the nation. And I think on top of that, an increasing number of people are embracing an understanding of the world and their life and their places in the world that is, at the end of the day, hopeless. And it says that, really, this life is all you have. When you die, that's it. it it's done and over. And so people are striving with all of their might to live life to the fullest now. So what happens when a pandemic comes out of nowhere and starts to claim the lives of people that you know and love and perhaps even threaten your own life? Many people will respond in, with anxiety and sheer hopelessness. As we get started today, I think we need to say, well, it's no wonder people are saying that the, the new age of anxiety is, is here. Many people are facing a future without any hope at all. And I think we also need to say, friends, this is not anything new for the church of Jesus Christ. The Christian church has, in fact, flourished before in the midst of prevailing hopelessness. And uh, in the ancient world, the Christian church endured numerous plagues that devastated uh, cities and villages. The reality of death was all around and people had no hope. And yet in the midst of that, we find Christian communities thriving and standing out in the bleakness of those times. Here's, a, here's one historian's explanation of why. I'll read this to you. He says, for Christians, this life was always meant to be transitory and just part of a larger story. What was important to the Christians was to orient one's life toward the larger story and see their life story in the light of that larger story, which he calls the cosmic story, the story of eternity. Going on, he says, they did live in this world, experience pain, and loved others, but the Christians of that time were called to see the story of this life as just one of the stories in which they lived. The hidden map was this larger picture. Now, the hidden map, the language that he uses there, was, it was, was very, very different for Christians from any other religious consolation available. Now, for example, for these, these ancient Christians, you know, Greek stories and Greek mythologies uh, about, about death and life after death, instead of offering hope and comfort to, to people, actually only intensified the dread and the fear. Uh, 
acknowledging perhaps some kind of consciousness after death as you passed over the river Styx and entered into Hades and an endless night. And yet, in an age of fear and utter hopelessness, Christians had hope. Hope that was not grounded in man. Hope that was not grounded in in an idea of human progress. But hope that was grounded in God himself. The biblical word for hope means something like assured certainty. And my friends, this hope that we have is centered on one decisive event. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because it is the guarantee that our sins are forgiven. That we are, in fact, accepted by God. Not because of anything we do, but because we are staking our lives on the merits of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the guarantee that Jesus Christ is the sinless, righteous Son of God, vindicated, justified, in his resurrection, recognized to be the mediator between God and man. It is the guarantee that Jesus Christ is the established Lord of history and is guiding and directing all things and until he returns, when we will be bodily raised like him and when he will judge the world and make all things right. And when we will then live with him in a new heavens, in a new earth, where righteousness dwells. Where there is no longer any sin, or sickness, or sorrow, or death, or any kind of wickedness at all. Friends, this is our hope. And it is all grounded upon the reality that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. But in Corinth, some of the Christians were starting to ask, what if? Yeah, what, 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 what if there is no general resurrection? What if there is no resurrection at all? Take a look at verse 12. Now, Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And so some of them were apparently saying, you know, I don't think that this resurrection stuff really matters all that much. I'm not sure I buy it. And is it even necessary at, at all? Can't we have salvation without bodily resurrection? Now, to appreciate why some of the Corinthians may have been thinking this way, it's helpful to realize that they were living in a culture that typically viewed the body, our physical body, in very negative terms. They saw the body as something to be escaped from. Right? So, uh, uh, Immaterial, spiritual, good, uh, material, physical, bad. Something to be delivered from. That's no wonder then why in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is preaching the Areopagus, and he's preaching the reality of uh, the resurrection, and some of the people listening are saying, you know, what is the babbler going on about, speaking about a resurrection? Uh, For some of them, a doctrine of the resurrection was nonsensical. The idea that bodily resurrection is part and parcel of salvation seemed to some absurd. 
And so in verses 13 through 19, Paul takes their what if, and you see what he does, he teases it out a bit. He says, okay, guys, let's think this through. Let's follow through to the implications of what you are suggesting. What if, what would happen if we would just toss out uh, the resurrection of our bodies? And notice everything he says to them, every consequence he traces flows from this one ultimate, singular, fundamental reality. That if we reject the idea of bodily resurrection in general, then logically, better yet, theologically, we must also reject the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits of resurrection. You see how he puts it in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. See what he's saying? No general resurrection? Then Christ remains dead. And what, what difference would that make? Right? If Jesus remains in the grave, if he remains dead, Paul says there are basically two groups of consequences. In verses 14 and 15, there are consequences for gospel proclamation. And in verses 16 through 19, there are consequences for personal salvation. So think first of all about the consequences for gospel proclamation. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if, if Christ is dead, preaching him is worthless. It's a waste of time. The gospel is not good news. But remember, the good news Paul preached, he's already summarized it for us back at the beginning of chapter 15. And at its core, at the very heart of this good news, is this reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The cross and the empty tomb, which are inextricably linked. And so if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the whole message is a sham. And we might as well just close our Bibles, go home, and never come to church again. That's what Paul is saying. The preachers, you see, this would simply mean that we are wasting our time and, and your time. Paul is saying more than that. He's saying that we will be found misrepresenting God. Paul is imagining standing before God on judgment day and found misrepresenting God for telling people that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He's shuddering at the idea of standing before God on the day of judgment, bearing false witness to who God is and what God has done, telling people lies about him. It's a fear Paul had, and a fear that I think is odd lacking in many ways today. But here's the simple point. If Christ did not rise, he's saying, then the entire Christian ministry is nothing more than a fool's errand that can do nothing more than expose those who have devoted their lives to gospel proclamation to the judgment of God. That's what Paul was saying here. And so consequences for gospel proclamation. And then second, for personal salvation. If Christ did not rise again from the dead, Paul is saying, we're still in on our sins. 
We're still in our sins. Guilty before God. Verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sin. Now follow Paul's logic. A denial of the general resurrection demands a denial of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And a denial of the bodily resurrection of Christ means a denial of any possibility of salvation. The Bible makes clear that forgiveness of sin requires atonement. And the Bible tells us that's precisely what Jesus did by offering himself up on Calvary's tree. He offered himself up as a substitute for sinners. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So you see, the resurrection of Jesus then was the Father's justification of his righteous Son, his vindication. It was Christ's public vindication Meaning, it was the declaration of God the Father that Jesus was sinless, that his sacrifice was perfect and acceptable to God, that he was a righteous son of God, and therefore his atoning work for sinners was complete. But you see, if he's still dead, then he has not been vindicated, and we are still in our sins. That's what Paul is saying. So you see, our whole salvation hangs on the answer to this one question. Did Jesus Christ, in the same body in which he was crucified, dead and buried, rise again from the dead? If he did not, then we are still in our sin. Without the resurrection, there is only failure for Jesus and hell for us. That's the implication of verse 18 when Paul speaks about the fate of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. He's talking about people who have put their trust in Christ. If Christ is dead, he says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're lost. And that's why Paul says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are to be above all people, most to be pitied. He's saying, what a pathetic bunch we are if Jesus is still dead. If his bones are rotting away in the ground somewhere. If our hope in Christ is only for this life, what do we have, Paul is saying? Nothing. What hope do we have to offer to people who are suffering from Severe disease and awaiting death. What hope we have to people who are experiencing the disappointments and struggles and heartaches of life in a fallen world? What hope do we have? Paul is saying we don't have any hope without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the stakes are high. The Corinthians were treating the resurrection like a Jenga block. You remember the game Jenga? And the resurrection is like one of those blocks that you, you can pull out and set it aside and, and you know, the, the tower remains standing. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The resurrection is one of those blocks where once you pull it out, the whole edifice comes crashing down to the ground. The Christian faith is destroyed. Everything depends on the resurrection of Jesus. And so after teasing out the implications of this for the Corinthians, um, 
the what if about, about resurrection, he turns to the in fact. Let's take a look at this in verses 20 through 28. He starts in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now back in verses 1 through 11, Paul, remember he rehearsed um, the facts of Christ's death and resurrection in accordance with scriptures. And then he went on to list various post-resurrection appearances that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and the Twelve, and, and, uh, and to five hundred. Uh, and uh, Paul says that at the time of writing 1 Corinthians, many of whom are still alive. You can go and talk to them about it if you'd like. He also appeared to, to James and to Paul himself. Now, now, you read that and you think, well, why is Paul bothering to share this information? What's the point? He, he is simply saying, look, look, the resurrection is not a myth. It's not wishful thinking. It's not mass delusion or group hallucination. It is an historical fact. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and because it is a fact of history, it changes everything. Paul says that Jesus has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So instead of those who have died perishing forever, because Jesus rose, he is the first fruits of a harvest that is yet to come. So he, he is, Paul is saying, he is the beginning of a resurrection harvest. His resurrection guarantees the future bodily resurrection of all of his people. Indeed, we can say that the resurrection is not just a future reality. The resurrection has already begun in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There is a man who has conquered death and who is seated at the right hand of God the Father who possesses life eternal. And all those who belong to him will be brought with him as part of this great resurrection harvest on the day of his return. That's what Paul is saying in here. And put it, put it in, in more simple terms, he's, he's saying, look, what happened to him will happen to you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome to contemplate? Because it happened to Jesus, it will happen to you, dear believer. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and so our resurrection is already a done deal. That's what Paul is saying. The resurrection has already begun with Christ as the first fruits. And if you look down at verses 22 through 29, Paul spells out a little bit more how this works out for us. Now, in, in verses 22 through 29, Paul, think of it this way, he's telling us to look in three directions. Okay? First he's saying, look back to Adam and see the parallel between Adam and Christ. And if you like, this is the theological mechanism that, that explains how this works for us. Then he's going to say, look forward in verses 23 and 24 to the manner of our resurrection, how it will be when Christ comes. And then finally, he's telling us to look up in verses 25 through 28. Look up and see Christ's 
present reign, how he sits upon the throne. Okay, so you could say the method, the manner, and mastery. Let's just think about these ideas really quickly here. Think first of all about the theological method that Paul is opening up to us here. How does it work? Verses 21 and 22. As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So first he's talking about Adam. He's comparing and contrasting Adam with Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Look back to Adam and see the parallel between Adam and Christ. Christ is the second Adam. He's the last Adam. The first brought death to us all by his sin as a public figure, as a representative of the human race. And God in his grace has supplied another representative, namely Jesus, as a second Adam to undo what the first Adam did by his sin and to do what the first Adam failed to do. I think I've used this illustration in the past. It's, I think it's really helpful for kids to think of it this way. Think kids out, you know, two locomotive trains, right? And, and the whole human race is hitched to one of these two locomotives. So one of them is on the track to death. And the other is on the track to life. And Paul is setting before us this important question. Which locomotive are you attached to? And if you're still hitched to the Adam train, how do you get unhitched and attached to Christ who leads his people to eternal life? Of course, the answer of the gospel is by putting your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen one who reigns and is coming again. But Paul is raising this question for us. You know, you're either connected to Adam or to Christ. One leading to death, the other leading to life. Which is true of you? And after telling us to look back, Paul says, okay, let's look forward now. Verses 23 and 24. By Christ it has come the resurrection of the dead, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Okay, so look back to the theological mechanism that explains how this works, parallel between Adam and Christ. Now look forward to see the manner by which we will be brought into the resurrection and life that it is yet to come. Paul says that Christ is the first fruits, as we said a minute ago, the guarantee of the full harvest that it is to come. And when Christ returns on that great day, those who belong to him will be raised with, with glorious bodies that reflect the glory of Christ's own exalted humanity. And then the final judgment will begin. Paul is saying, new creation will come. All things will be made new. And death will be swallowed up in victory. And then, at last, Christ, the triumphant second Adam, God's king, God's true image bearer, who has filled the earth and subdued it, will hand the kingdom of God 
to, to God the Father having destroyed every rule and every authority and every power. So all that opposes righteousness, all that stands in opposition to the goodness of God, strongholds of evil, everything that militates against the justice and righteousness of God, from satanic powers to disease to wicked people living in rebellion against him, all of it will be overthrown and the dominion of God's glory and grace will be fully realized. You see, it's not only for this life that we have hope. That's what Paul is helping us understand here. Because Jesus rose again, we are learning as Christians to look beyond this life, beyond suffering here, beyond the disappointments of life in a fallen world, not making light of them, but seeing beyond the thorn and the thistles, beyond the sweat upon our brows, beyond the curse and death, because we know that Jesus lives, and he is the first fruits, and therefore a whole new world is coming. That is our hope, and it is a hope that keeps us going in the midst of sorrow and pain and suffering and sickness here. Hope that makes us live for more than today. Hope that makes us live for more than the fleeting passing days of this life. Because Jesus lives, dear friends, there is a world to come. And so look back and see what connects us to Jesus' resurrection. And then look forward and see the manner of our resurrection is to come. And then finally in verses 25 through 28, look up and be reminded right now that Christ has mastery. Take a look at these verses, starting in verse 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. <clears throat> but, but when it says all things are put, put in subjection, it is plain that he, Father, is accepted who puts all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, we could take a whole sermon to unpack what Paul is saying in that very dense set of verses. But let's just say this today. Paul is reflecting here on Psalm 110. We know, we know Psalm 110. This is about Christ. And it says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies to be a footstool for your feet. And 1 Corinthians 15.25 is telling us that is what's happening right now. This is, this is reality. This is the truest reality. This is what's happening right now. Christ, the Son of God, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and God is making all things to be, all his enemies to be a footstool for his feet. Christ is risen. Christ reigns at the right hand of God, and he will continue to reign until Psalm 110 is perfectly fulfilled, and God has put all of his and our enemies underneath Christ's of course, as Paul says in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
including us in on that one day, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, death will be no more. Until then, dear believer, remember that, that Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is seated upon the throne, reigning. And so in the midst of widespread hopelessness that we see all around us, pessimism, which reigns in the minds and hearts of so many people, brothers and sisters, let's remember today and the days to come, and let's confess our hope, a hope not in ourselves, our hope not in worldly powers, our hope not in man, but our hope in God himself, who put death to death in the death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. And that same Christ, Paul is telling us here, now lives and reigns until all his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. And he's coming again to raise us up with him and to make all things new. That, dear friends, is our gospel hope. That is our Christian hope. And it is a hope that cannot be shaken because, in the language of Psalm 110, Christ must reign until all things have been subjected to him. My prayer is that each and every one of us know this abiding hope that is found in Christ alone, Christ who died, Christ who is raised, Christ who is reigning right now, and Christ who will come again. May you know resurrection hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son into the world to save sinners like us. Thank you for raising him up by the power of the Holy Spirit, securing for us our eternal redemption. Thank you for the hope that we can have in this hopeless world, knowing that our lives are in your hands, that Jesus Christ is upon the throne, and that he reigns and is coming in and will judge the world and make all things right. Till that day, keep us grounded in hope and confessing our hope to a world that so desperately needs it. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.